Hey, Cornerstone. So uh, just want to give a big shout out to our Santan campus, to the Scottsdale campus, to everybody that's joining us uh, online for this service. Man, just, just so glad you're part of the Cornerstone family. All right, we're starting a brand new series. It's called uh, David, the story, the unlikely story of a king. And guys, look, if, if you don't get anything else through this whole series, here's a theme that you need to get because it'll transform you if you, if, if you catch on and it applies. And it's simply this. You're going to see over and over and over again as we have this conversation, when David's on, when David's following God, when, when David's plugged in to his relationship with God, he is spectacular. I mean, he does stuff that you and I can't imagine. He's slaying giants. He's leading a, a kingdom in remarkable, unbelievable ways and having incredible success. But, 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 when David unplugs, and he does unplug, and when David says, I'm going to do this my way, and I'm going to put my hand into it, and when he's not on for God, it gets ugly, and it gets ugly fast. And guys, this is a huge life lesson for you and me. And so if you don't catch anything else in the series, learn that uh, from the life of David. We're going to start today with David's selection, the, the moment in which God says, hey, I need David to be my next king, because you realize David's not in line to be king. Uh, the present king of Israel at this point is a guy by the name of Saul. He's actually a member of the tribe of Benjamin. David has nothing to do with nothing to do with nothing uh, with Saul. And yet God is going to get so frustrated with this guy named Saul because he's so busy sticking his hands in it. And in moments he doesn't understand God, he decides to be smarter than God and do things his own way. That finally God just says, look, Saul, I'm so done with you. I, you have worn me out. And, and the reality is, I'm so done with you, I'm done with your family, I'm done with your tribe, I'm gonna, we're going to jump all the way over here, I'm going a completely different direction. And that completely different direction is a guy by the name of David. But here's the part that, that now begins to cause intrigue for you and me. Why David? Why David? Because, guys, guys, there are a hundred more people in the kingdom more qualified than David. There are people who are more talented. There are people who are, have better physical builds and look more like a king. There are people who are better educated than David. There are a hundred more talented, more capable people in the kingdom than David, and yet God chooses David. And we just want to take some time to go, why? Why, why does God's hand land on David? Why does God's favor land on David? Because on first blush, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And in the process of unpacking that question and coming to the answer, it is literally life-changing for you and me. So watch as we go. See if you can figure it out on the journey. So grab your Bibles. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's the moment in which God is making this selection. David at this point is just a teen. Goliath hasn't happened yet. He's just a young boy tending his father's sheep. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16, and if you're not real familiar, if you go to the front of your Bible, then work to the right, you're going to find 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16, starting in verse 1, uh, let, me, let me read this uh, for you. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? <laughs> Remember we told you, God said, look, I'm done with this guy, he's, he's, he's not the right guy for the job. How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him 
as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And the horn with oil is usually, that's how you would anoint a king. You'd pour the oil over their head uh, in that moment. Verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Why, why are you here, Samuel? Most of the time when the preacher shows up, it's bad. It's kind of like when the preacher shows up at the hospital. You're probably in trouble, okay? Samuel replied, yes, I, I, in peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. So you get this. So here comes Jesse. He brings all his boys in tow, and his oldest son, Eliab, shows up, and, and immediately Samuel goes, okay, now there's a guy that looks like a king. I mean, he's, he's intimidating, he's big, he's good-looking, he's, he's got all those things you'd want a king to have. Surely the king is standing right in front of me. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're, they're still the youngest. It's kind of a scrawny little kid. Not much to look at. Jesse answered, uh, he's out tending the sheep. Samuel said to him, we will not sit down until that one arrives. And the story goes on, and of course, God picks David. Now, guys, 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 think about this. How remarkable is it that David apparently, in the scope of human talent, is so negligent, so lacking, that his own family does not even put him up for consideration? I mean, think about it. His own dad doesn't even bother to bring him for the look. I mean, how humiliating is that moment? When, when, when your own father goes, look, if you're picking one of my, I mean, that, there's no, there's no chance. And yet that's the very guy that God wanted, which I'm just going to say to you guys, this ought to bring a moment of hope for some of us in the room, because here's the deal. Some of us in the room, we've sat and we got, look, God could never use me and, and I would never be capable of doing anything incredible in my I mean, I, I just don't have, I'm so ordinary. There is nothing exceptional about me. How cool is it? 
How cool is it that little David, the guy that nobody, not even his own family, saw any compelling quality or talent in, is the guy that God wants? You realize God's got kind of a pattern in this, right? That more, that more often than not, when you read Scripture, it's the overlooked individual. It's the person that nobody has any, it's the person nobody even thinks has a chance. It's the one that God says, that's the one I can use. That's the one that I could do. Think about this. Think about Gideon. And here's Gideon when the Amalekites are getting ready to attack, and he's down in the bottom of a wine press sorting out the wheat. He's down there because he's terrified and trembling, and yet God comes to him and says, oh, mighty warrior, hang on, because I'm going to do something with you. How incredible is it that Moses, and we go, oh, yeah, and we get all excited and Ten Commandments. It was way better than the movie that was just out. Let me just tell you that part. But you realize Moses, he's going to send a talk to the most powerful man in the history, or at that point in the world, and Moses stammers. You and I would have never picked Moses. Isn't it intriguing that God very often picks people who you and I would overlook? Anybody got an idea why God does that? I think... I think it's our very recognition of our lack of ability that commends us to God, that causes us to say, God, if I go do this for you, if you're going to invite me, man, you better show up because I know, you ready? I know I can't do this on my own. And I think God loves that moment of humility and lean. I'm a young man and I'm sitting in church as a teenager, and I'm, I'm feeling like maybe God is calling me to ministry. And I, I, You want to talk about a wrestling match. I sat there Sunday after Sunday with God going, God, you are so wrong. You have picked the wrong guy. I was terrified at the idea of even speaking in public. I, I would say to you, if you go back to Gateway Baptist Church, and if you look on the bottom side of the pew, I'm positive you'll find my claw marks. As I sat there on Sunday and they sang, just as I am, remember those days, just as I am, and I said, I am not going forward, I am not going forward, I am not going forward. And I remember finally uh, the day I walked to the front of the church and I, I said to the pastor, I said, look, I, uh, I think God's calling me to ministry and I'll never forget his words. Here's what he said, why? And look, before you get too hard, I mean, look, and I, I, I think I'm a guy that probably has some capacities and has some God-given talent in my life, but here's the deal. If you take the things that God naturally and intuitively equipped me with, and then you line those up next to the typical pastor job description, none of them fit. None of them fit. I get why he said, why? It's the reason I was saying, Why? But let me tell you what happened in that moment of understanding that I did not have the capacities and the ability I was going to need if I was going to do this job. Besides the fact that all pastors back in those days wore leisure suits and slick back hair, and I was not interested. <laughs> I knew going in that if this thing was going to work, I needed Jesus to make it work. That whatever capacity, whatever talent I had, it wasn't enough or it wasn't the right ones. 
So let me, let me say this. Let me say this from the heart. One of the most dangerous things that happens in our lives is for us to have an overly inflated estimation of our own capacity and ability. It's why God so often walks by the talented. Guys, think about this. He walked by David's seven older brothers. And I'm guessing that probably every last one of them was more capable, more talented, more prepared. He gets to David because David knows he needs God if he's going to pull this off. And you and I so often we go, oh, well, hey, I, you know, I, I'm unbelievably gifted and I've got this capacity and, and not. Hey, God, if you'll just, I'll handle this one. And you get that in that moment, you and I literally disqualify ourselves. The minute you're enough, you're not. Let me see if this helps just a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll make sense, maybe it won't. There are some of us in the room, and, and we are single-sale people. We are limited, talented people. We know it going in. We go, look, there's, there's not a whole lot commendable about me. There are some of us in this room, and we go, I am a multi-sale dude. I, I am a girl with just all sorts of talent, capacity, ability. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Because the thing, the thing that the single talent, the single sale person has advantage to you already is they know unequivocally in their heart they need God. Just as much as, you ready for this? Just as much as a sail needs wind. Because you try to sail a boat and you don't have any wind, I don't care how many sails you have. You're not going anywhere. And very often it's the very humility of the person who looks at themselves and says, look, I don't have a whole lot of capacity. I know the only way this gets done in my life is if God engages with me. Because I don't possess the talent and the ability to get it done on my own. And it's when God then energizes my talent and ability. That something happens. It's the story of David. An under-equipped, under-talented guy who does remarkable things because he's plugged into God. But woe to the talented person who says, ah! See, that's what happens to those uh, overly... Uh, <clears throat> See, here's the deal. Whoa, Nelly. Okay. The moment you say, hey, I've got enough. I've, I've got enough capacity, enough ability on my own. I don't need the energizing work of God in my life. Guys, how far do sail ships go without the wind? Which is exactly how far talented people go without God. Think about it. It's why God, Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said this. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you will do nothing. And you go, no, 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 Lynn, I know talented people who've won the Super Bowl. I, I know talented people with unbelievable skills, unbelievable, who've built corporations or made millions of dollars, who've been elected to political office. 
And Jesus is saying that without me, you won't do anything that really, truly matters. You won't do something that has eternity written on it. Anybody remember who won the Super Bowl four years ago? Okay, two of us. Next year, you'll have forgotten. You won't do anything that really, really has eternity if you do it apart from the energizing. It's the reason that sometimes untalented people are more available and better instruments because they're not leaning in their own capacity. Now, guys, look, for some of us in this room, you're going, well, Lynn, I guess that disqualifies me because I'm a highly talented person with an awful lot of capacity. I guess God will never use me. You realize God used some really talented people in the Bible. Paul is a genius. Paul is a prodigy. And he ends up writing the vast majority of the New Testament. He ends up winning almost the whole then-known world to the cause of Christ. Solomon, fairly capable guy. But here's what those two highly talented, highly capable men had in common. They both knew they needed Jesus and they both leaned in to him and not to their human capacity. Because the minute you and I think you and I are all that, we aren't. We aren't. So what are some of the things that David did have? What are some of the things that potentially commended him to God and why maybe God was attracted to this young man who was limited in talent. And the first one is just simply this. David unequivocally, unapologetically loves God more than he loves himself. He just does. He says, look, if you're going to get me right down to my core, I love God more than I love anything else in this life. Matter of fact, so much so that when God is turning away from Saul, when he's saying, Saul, look, you've blown it. You've been, you, you, you've been so cantankerous with me. You, you've taken self-control of your life so many times. I'm just so worn out with you, Saul, because the only thing you're interested in is your own self-promotion. And I am looking for a man, okay, you ready? First Samuel chapter 13. I am looking for a man who is after my own heart. I'm looking for somebody who loves me, that I am their first great love, and they love me more than they love anything else. Which is an interesting question. Because would that work for you and me? Or are you and I just in it with Jesus for what we get out of it? And if, and if things were to go bad and if God were to start to take things away, would our love waver? If, if your life were like an onion and God were to begin to peel it back, if he, pulled, if he pulled the job on you and me, and all of a sudden he said, okay, look, here's the deal. You're going to lose your job. If you follow me, there's going to be a moment of compromise, and I'm going to ask you not to compromise, and they're going to release you from your job. Or maybe for no good reason, maybe it's just going to be, hey, I'm going to let there be a season when you don't have a job, and you won't understand what, you're going to lose your job. But here's the question. If I allow you to lose your job, 
do you still love me? Or are you just in it for what you can get out of it? If somebody you love dies, do you still love me? I mean, if you don't understand and they were too young and I don't get it and I, do you still love me? Or do you only love me if I behave the way you want me to behave and I do what you want me to do? See, David's answer, David's answer is, God, I love you more than anything that can be given to me or that can happen. And pleasing you is more important than anything I can gain for myself. It's one of the things that commends him to God. He is a man after God's heart, not his heart. This isn't about what David needs or wants. This is about what God needs and wants. There's a second thing that's, that commends David, and that's this. David is absolutely convinced that God is smarter than him. He is absolutely sold out on the idea. He has no hesitation to say, I know that God knows things I don't know, understands things I understand, and that God is always smarter than me. This has been Saul's struggle. Every time Saul came up to a moment that he didn't understand, Saul sticks his hands in and says, God, step to the side, I'll fix this. Matter of fact, the tipping point in Saul's kingship was a moment in which the prophet was supposed to come and offer sacrifice. They were getting ready to face an army that was way bigger than them, and the prophet was slow to get there, and Saul said, okay, I mean, if the prophet's not here, I'll fix this, and he goes and offers sacrifices himself. Because at the end of the day, Saul was pretty sure he was smarter than God and smarter than the plan of God, and he was going to fix it in his own capacity. And David is just the opposite. David is absolutely, get this, David is absolutely convinced that God is smarter than him, even when, especially, guys, especially when he doesn't understand what God is doing. Isn't it true? Isn't that the hardest moment to believe that God is smarter than us? When we're sitting there and we've been dating this guy and he doesn't know Jesus and he's asking us to marry him and we know scripture says, hey, you shouldn't be married. And isn't that the hardest moment to go, God, I know you said I shouldn't marry someone who doesn't know Jesus. I, I think maybe you're smarter than me. Isn't that the hardest time? It isn't the hardest time to trust God when all of a sudden you're going, hey, uh, I know, I know, I know. I know what the Bible says about divorce, but my marriage is so unhappy, and it would just be better for the kids. Isn't that the hardest time? When you don't understand, and why did God say that, and I would have never written that. Isn't that the hardest time to say, but God, I'm convinced that you're smarter than me and know better than me? But David is absolutely committed. Matter of fact, in Psalm 119, verse 105, here's what, here's what David says. Your word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Here's what David's saying. These are his words. God, I don't take a step. I don't put my foot anywhere that your word does not approve of. Your word is the light that lights my next decision. And I don't take a single step that I cannot see confirmed and validated by Scripture. And God, and look at, get the illustration. There's a whole bunch of darkness out there that I don't understand. I don't see the moving pieces. I don't know how this ends up in the end. I don't get how you're working. or how, There's a whole bunch out there. I can't even see in this moment. 
but God, I am convinced that you are smarter than me, that you know better than me, and especially in the most confusing moments of my life, I will in that moment stick with my marriage. Leave the boyfriend who doesn't know Jesus and find a man who does. I'll give when my bank account doesn't say it works because I trust that you know better than me. It's what commands David to God. Isn't it interesting in our culture right now how many TV shows about families that the theme running throughout the TV shows is the kids always figure it out before the parents. The kids are always smarter, the kids are always more accommodating, the kids are always wiser, and the parents are the ones that are always slow to catch on and slow to get it. Now guys, that, that may make for great entertainment. And maybe, maybe it's because of the paradox that says, look, because it's not, it's not true, right? It's a rare day when the kid actually has greater insight, greater wisdom than their parent. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I feel compelled to say to my kids, hey, look, uh, you can watch that TV show all you want. You just need to know this. You are not smarter than your dad. And if you believe that, even for a minute, if you live your life believing that the only time you need to obey me and the only time you need to respond to my direction is when you agree with me, think about this. A four-year-old that obeys their parents only when they understand what their parents are doing? How crazy is that? It's almost as crazy as parents who want to explain to their kids what they're doing all the time. <laughs> they're four! How much more powerful to say to your kids, hey, look, I get it. I get that you don't understand it. I get you don't know why I said that. I, I get you don't understand why I said you shouldn't be dating him. I get you don't understand why I said you should eat your vegetables before you eat your ice cream. I get it. But at the end of the day, I have lived more life. I've done more things. I've felt more repercussions for bad decisions. And you are only blessed when you Obey me, even in the moments you don't understand in your four-year-old mind. Wouldn't you agree? How many would agree with that? Okay, about three of us. All right. So the rest, that's, that's why we're struggling with this. Because here's the point, guys. Your heavenly Father knows what you don't know. And he has seen what you haven't seen. And he has gone where you haven't gone. And it's why he wrote that passage in Scripture. And it's why you're crazy when you say, hey, God, I can't see it. I don't understand it. I don't agree. So I'm going to step off into the darkness of the unknown and do it my way. David is way ahead of you. David says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path, and I will only go where you tell me to go because I'm ready for this. I'm convinced, God, that you know more than I know, you see more than I see, and you're smarter than me, and I don't have to agree to obey. Boy, is there any doubt why God is so attracted to David? And here's what you got to get. Here's the landing point of this. God is not concerned with David's talents. 
Matter of fact, go back to the passage. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. If you close your Bibles, go back. This is a biggie. If you turned off your iPhone, turn them on. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Here's, here's the answer. Here's why God chooses this young man of limited capacity and ability. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. Don't, don't judge this guy by his resume. Don't think about what you can see on the outside. This isn't about him being taller and bigger and stronger and more eloquent. Do not judge him by his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things that people look at. The, Lord, the people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And guys, get this. In God's economy, character always trumps talent. Let me say that again, because this is life-changing if it settles in. In God's economy, character always trumps talent, period. Let me tell you about a moment when this kind of came full circle for me. I'm, I'm a youth pastor fairly early in my youth career. They'd given me uh, this youth group as an assignment, and the minute I walked in the youth group, you could not help but see Tommy. Tommy was this remarkable young man. He was good-looking, he was winsome, he had that ability to say things, and people just stopped and listened to Tommy. He was a natural-born leader. And here's what I thought as a young youth pastor. If I could get Tommy to follow Jesus, if I could get him sold out for God, he would be like the bell cow. He, he would be the guy at the front and everybody else in the youth group because he's so influential, he's so winsome, he's so talented. Everybody else would follow Tommy. And so for the next six months, I invested, invest, I, I would drive Tommy to every event, I would go out to coffee with Tommy every, I invested tons of time into Tommy because I knew if I could win Tommy with all that talent and all that ability, I could win the group. Six months in, I'd made zero headway. Tommy was all about how many girls he could get. He was all about how popular he could be. It was all about Tommy. And he was going to use every gift, every talent, every capacity he had to promote himself. In a moment of desperation, I turned and I looked and I realized I had multiple kids in that youth group I had neglected. I hadn't spent time with them. I hadn't invested in them because they weren't as talented as Tommy. And so I shifted gears and I began to spend time and I began to take them to the coffees and drive them to the activities and invest in their lives. And I, guys, I'm just telling you, it was transformational for the youth group. There were kids who grew up and just were bold witnesses for Christ. There were kids who ended up going into ministry out of that group. So now I go to the next church with the lesson that I've learned. Ready, ready, ready? That with God, character always trumps talent. And I walk into this next youth group, and I began to look for, anybody want to guess? Character. And so now I'm looking around the youth group. We've taken all the kids up on a camping trip. And on this camping trip, uh, there breaks out this kind of weird little uh, fight. Uh, there's one guy, he's an older guy, he's athletic, he's this popular guy, all the girls want to date him, and then there's Bobby Duke, he's freshman, he's short, got a little baby face, 
To this day, I don't think Bobby Duke can grow a whisker. <laughs> Not athletic. Bobby Duke. And somewhere in the course of the day, there becomes a bantering between the two and the seniors trying to make his place and make sure that Bobby Duke knows his place as a lowly little freshman guy. And at one point, Bobby Duke decides to quit back to this big old senior. And the big old senior hauls off and slugs him in the face. Bobby Duke goes sprawling on the ground. The senior then gets on his shoulders and begins to pound Bobby Duke in the face. The leaders get there, we break it up, we send them to their tents. Finally, tent time was over. Anybody want to guess what Bobby Duke did? He walked over to that senior and he said, I'm sorry. I know, I know my smart mouth is what put you over the top. And, and I just want to tell you that I forgive you. And immediately I said, that's a kid with character. And immediately I said, if I can invest in him, and if the rest of the kids could live like that kid just lived, we'd have a pretty remarkable youth group. Guys, I'm just going to tell you that Bobby Duke became the bell cow of our youth group. You've all heard the wrist bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? Our mantra became, what would Bobby Duke do? This guy, in every moment of his life, little teeny Bobby Duke, no athletic ability, nothing winsome about him, none of the girls necessarily wanted to date him. But little Bobby Duke looked a lot like Jesus. And he literally transformed the culture of that group. Because, because, because. In God's economy, character always trumps talent. How many people would say, hey, Lynn, I, I think I already knew that. I think I understood that before we came. Thanks for reminding me, but I think I kind of knew that. Oh, none of us. Okay, well, then we learned something new. That's good. All right. Good sermon. <laughs> so let me say this then. This is hard. This is so anti our culture because our culture is so caught up on looks and so caught up on talent, and we worship the Michael Jordans and the Heidi Klums of this world. Guys, this is absolutely countercultural. And the problem is in the church, we haven't figured this out either. It's why, guys, guys, think about this. If you and I believe that, ta that character trumps talent, then tell me why Christians vote for politicians who have the right policy but have horrible character. And then we go, no, 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 that's his personal life. Really? Because in God's economy, character trumps talent or ideas, or policies. If you, and, if you and I believe, if we get this, tell me how we make time to go and work out three, four times a week and have a hard time having daily devotions for seven minutes if character trumps talent. Tell me why we sign our kids up for sport after sport after sport after sport, knowing that it conflicts and they'll miss youth group. 
if character trumps talent. Tell me why we'll sit at home with our kids and we'll help them with their homework. But think about having a family devotion and we're terrified. Tell me how that can even possibly be the answer if character trumps talent. Guys, I'm just going to say this. If you and I want to raise kids who that when God is looking to do his next great thing, he chooses them, then you and I better start worrying about character. And if you and I ever want the possibility that God picks us, we better start worrying about character. Because in God's economy, character always trumps talent. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we, we simply come to the moment. And thank you, thank you for a little shepherd boy who hadn't done anything yet, who, who by the account of his own family shouldn't have even been considered for the job. And yet you chose him. Out of thousands, you chose him because he had character. And character always trumps talent. And God, I'm just going to ask, God, in a culture, in a world that's consumed with looking good enough and performing high enough and upgrading our knowledge and our... God, help us to remember that if you have to choose character, character has to win. Help us to be that church, that family, that person. In Jesus' precious name, amen.